welcome to Unfortunately Required Reading. This is Victoria and Amanda here. We are the hosts of this show, obviously. Otherwise, that would be weird who would be talking to you. Or we've been replaced by replicants. If you hear us laughing uncontrollably, it's because this week there's absinthe in our drink. There is absinthe in our drink. Um, in honor of Ernest Hemingway, we are drinking a death in the afternoon with uh, more sugar than Hemingway would like, but I felt it was necessary to get through this cocktail and this experience. So what all is in Death in the Afternoon? You kind of just told us, but... <laughs> so a true Death in the Afternoon, the way Hemingway wrote it, was uh, a jigger of absinthe to more or less champagne. And there's a really, really cool chemical reaction that happens because normally with absinthe, you have to do like a whole alchemy thing with it. Uh, but the champagne helps uh, fix that alchemy problem. I added sweetener because I would like to survive. Yes. Also, there will be pictures of this chemical reaction on our Instagram because we are those people. Yes. So, <clears throat> as you can probably tell, we're reading an Ernest Hemingway book. We've been teasing it for, like, three weeks because we finally got our lives together. Yes. Um, the book is The Sun Also Rises. Now, if a lot of you were in California and you were a junior in high school and had to read this book, you probably had a teacher who was like, here, this is Hemingway. Hemingway is important. We're also not going to cover most of this book. Have a great day. Yeah, Hemingway is actually, I never had to read this one when I was in high school, um, but I found Hemingway's work because I was an edgelord, and by was, I mean I still am. <laughs> um, He's very, he's like a male Sylvia Plath. He is like a male Sylvia Plath. Down to all of the societal <laughs> expectations that burdened him literally unto death. Yes. Um, Which we will discuss, because if you thought the Fitzgerald episode was heavy on authorial intent... Oh, Lord, oh. you've got it coming. So one of the terms that we are going to be using quite a bit in this is toxic masculinity. I mean, the episode is called The Toxic Masculinity Also Rises. So in order to get you to not yell at us, but rather our sources, we're going to be reading directly from Wikipedia. So we have two different sections from Wikipedia's uh, like area on masculinity. Toxic masculinity. Cannell argues that an important feature of hegemonic masculinity is the use of toxic practices, such as physical violence, which may serve to reinforce men's dominance over women in Western societies. Other scholars have used the term toxic masculinity to refer to stereotypical masculine gender roles that restrict the kinds of emotions allowable for boys and men to express, including social expectations that men seek to be dominant, aka the alpha male, and limit the emotional range primarily to expressions of anger. I think realistically that's more of the definition that we're using. Um, toxic masculinity is one of those terms like cultural appropriation and feminism and women's rights that have become uh, loaded recently for some reason. I can see why, but we're definitely using that second definition a little bit more. Just that the expectations placed upon men are unfair and it leads to these practices that um, only continue to perpetuate misogyny, but also then does damage the men that are forced to keep up with them. So in other words, it's okay for you to like your football team. It's okay for you to be excited that they're winning. It's not okay to punch somebody in the face because they lost. True. All right. Now that we've got the heavy, creepy, horrible part out of the way, but there's more to come, um, here's a brief description of the plot of The Sun Also Rises. Mm -hmm. So a group of expats, American, British, Scottish, kind of just people showing up, yep. are all hanging out in Paris, but hormones are riding high. Lady Brett Ashley has just returned from being away, and everyone is trying to get into her pants. Well, except Jake Barnes, because he's impotent, so he's not invited to the pants party. Brett's still pretty into him, they had a thing, but however, Brett or Jake Barnes' friend Robert Cohn is crazy into Brett, to the point where he's an irresponsible jerk ass face. Yes. They have some sort of fling, Jake goes to Spain with his friend Bill to go see some bullfights, and everybody kind of ends up going there. Cohn ends up meeting them there, along with Brett and her Scottish fiancé, whoops, and Brett ends up turning both of them over to go for a bullfighter, none of which seems to surprise Jake at all, knowing her. So fistfights ensue, bull deaths ensue, everyone leaves mad, Brett tries to romance her love for Hemingway, I mean Jake. Hemingway writes a book about his actual experience in Spain, I mean Jake Barnes. The, honestly, when I was reading this, it really reminded me of uh, The Hangover. Yes. But with uh, The Lost Generation. 
The Lost Generation hangover. I like it. Yeah, I mean, it's really, and we're going to use this term also a lot. Ernest Hemingway is an aggressive Mary Sue. Yes. He, this is just his existence with prettier people. It's sort of like why I can't watch Tyler Perry movies. It's like, this is my family reunion with hotter people. (laughs) When last um, episode, we talked about how this is kind of the ultimate TMZ novel as well. And it really is. Hemingway actually had to go back and cross people's names out of his original version of it because he was using people's actual names. Right. Thus perpetuating the idea that this is literally just his fan fiction. Right. So, Brett Ashley was actually based on a lady named Duff Twyden, who was out in France and known very well for drinking and hanging out and wearing jersey knit shirts that looked good on her, but not anybody else. You know, not to cut you off, I made a note on that in my copy of the book, which, please understand the mental image of me on the public transport bus listening to Beethoven while reading The Sun Also Rises. That was a thing that happened. So then, do we become edgelords or classlords? Both. All right. Vampires. (laughs) Vampires. <laughs> Vampires. Um, that was a note that I made was um like spending a lot of time on this dress. Yeah. Spending a lot of words on. I was kinda of surprised because like I can see us being like, mm, that looks good on her. I like that. Let's do that. But to have this very masculine man be like, Okay, this dress though. Although he was talking about her tits a lot. So. Yeah, I don't think he was talking about the dress as much as he was talking about the lamp that was wearing the dress. So we have, obviously, Duff Twyden, a.k.a. Brett Ashley. We have a young lady named Frances in the book who is actually, uh, who, she's Kitty Cannell in the book. However, it was based on a real person named Frances who Hemingway swore he would not include in the book. She was pissed for a long time about that. I can see that because she's written as a terrible person. Uh, Cone is based on his friend Harold Loeb, who obviously wasn't his friend for much longer after this book came out. Yep. And Mike Campbell, Brett's fiance, is based off of Pat Guthrie, who there were a lot of rumors about his sexuality. I can see that. And additionally, I can see how, um, upon reading this elaborate fan fiction, that you would not be Hemingway's friend after this. And that's one of the things that we were kind of talking about Hemingway being the ultimate Mary Sue. He makes Jake Barnes look like the most innocent man on the planet. He drinks, but he can always hold his liquor. Yes. He is not the one to throw the first punch, but he will take it. Right. He is a man's man who fishes and fights, but always does it with this sort of heavenly inspiration. He is always strong and always smart and always there for Brett Ashley when she really needs him because everyone else has screwed her over. Yeah, and to backpedal a little bit, when you say Mary Sue, we mean that in the fanfic term. And a Mary yes. Sue is um a trope in especially fan fiction and but also just in media of a hyper competent female character. Um she does have a male counterpart, the Jerry Sue, but it feels inappropriate in this instance, uh, because toxic masculinity, and I will dig into Hemingway's grave for as long as I can. Um really when you see these characters, it's almost like Ernest Hemingway made an idealized version of himself, which he did. It was like if you could remove all of the grit from Hemingway, you get Jake Barnes. Also to the point where he casually removed his own wife from the story. Oof. Which later he would go on to casually remove his own wife from the story. True. Accurate. <laughs> so something that we kind of came across while reading this toxic ma- toxic masculinity. It's fun to try and say when you've had absence. It is. It is the party in this book. It, As uh, you may have heard on My Favorite Murder, it does ruin the party. This this was never a good party. You don't want to be at this party. No. Brett is constantly vilified for following sexual desires and not latching on to men. There is even a part where they refer to the fact that she had gotten out of an abusive relationship. And one of the guys is like, yeah, I'm not really surprised that, you know, she's not trying to find a relationship. But she gets so much flack because she won't pick a penis and stick with it. Yeah, and you see that a lot, especially um, with the Lost Generation, is this odd relationship with women's sexuality that they're okay that they're kind of liberating all the flappers and everything but they're also incredibly threatened by it um to ignore Hemingway for a minute Salvador Dali had this problem with the duplicity of women that 
he really loved them as sexual creatures and was happy that they were so sexually liberated, but also hated them for it because they weren't choosing him, which is very much um, an echo of, and we're already going to implode the comment section, incel culture. Mm -hmm. It does sound a lot like the current, you know, apotheosis of toxic masculinity, which is involuntary celibates who are, you know, thinking that they have earned a woman by merely existing and vilifying women who take their desires into their own hands. Especially in a culture where they spent a lot of time with Gertrude Stein, who was a very well-known lesbian. She lived with her partner, Alice B. Coplas. They were part of the main culture for literature in Paris at the time. And it's really interesting to see how, over time, Hemingway pulled away from that relationship. Initially, this was the person he looked up to. This was the person he went to her house all the time. And then when he realized that she had the same issues, she fought with her girlfriend. She fought with, you know, over basic things. You know, she wasn't this masculine creature he thought she was. He turned away from her and left. There's a a story where he went to visit this inamovable feast and they, you know, um, Gertrude and, and Alice were fighting. And they were upstairs and the maid said, you know, please just stay a little while. He had his drink and then he walked out. They didn't want to hear it anymore. That's so sad. That's like going over to your friend's house because your parents are fighting and then you find out that your friends are fighting. I try not to fight in front of you, man. I appreciate it. (laughs) One of the other really interesting lines, and this is something we did not cover in high school literature. I'm going to tell you that right now. Brett saying, I won't be one of those bitches that ruins children. This is towards the end. And this is really interesting to me because in our culture, this still is a thing. When a woman says, I don't really want to have kids, I'm not really interested in in, having a kid. What are the number one things we say to her? Oh, you'll change your mind. Oh, you know, kids are really the best thing you can do. It's not a respect, especially when she is coming from you know, some pretty horrible relationships. And the the real person, Duff Twyden, had a child that was being, who had been taken by her in-laws. So it's one of those things where it's like, this really is one of those situations where she doesn't want to keep this perpetuating this. And I don't see anything wrong with that. No, but um, the hegemony of the era did. Mm-hmm. And even now, I mean, if she said that today, I mean, unless it was Mari Povich, yeah. would still be scandalized. And that's frustrating, and that's something that I know, like, I've personally grappled with, that I don't know if I want children, because I don't know if I want to perpetuate a cycle of I am a toxic cesspool, and I don't need that to multiply. And honestly, it's one of those things where we should almost praise her. She's figuring her life out. You know? Right. She's, she's not trying to put it on other people. The only person that she ever really puts it on is Jake Barnes, and that's Hemingway asking for it multiple times. True. One of the things that's a little scary in this book is just the sheer amount of casual racism and sexism, which is Hemingway. It's I'll, just Hemingway. I'll have to show you my copy that I started annotating where all of the instances of casual racism and casual sexism are marked in pencil. Um, so it's a lot. And I think that also feeds in a little bit to toxic masculinity, but I also think it feeds into, again, it just Hemingway as a person. I feel like he wrote as he spoke. Which he absolutely did. There are quite a few letters where he was writing to Max Perkins of Scribner's and writing to Fitzgerald and other writers at the time where, you know, he didn't pull punches. He was, frankly, a dick to everybody. I mean, he would send letters to Fitzgerald telling Fitzgerald that he sucked as a writer and he thought he was an alcoholic, which... Where's the lie? Where's the lie? But... I don't really think Fitzgerald sucked as much as Hemingway thought he did, especially because Hemingway's first version of this novel, when Mm -hmm. it got to Scribner's, which Fitzgerald pretty much helped him get published, by the way, um, was unpublishable. Max Perkins was like, hey, there's a lot of swearing in this. We're a pretty conservative house. You know, Scott, we kind of got away with publishing your book, but I don't know if we could publish this, but they already had a contract. Mm -hmm. And Hemingway was a fighter. Yes. He would fight for everything. It would be one of those things where he goes, well, this is just how they talk. This is, quote, locker room talk. That's not his quote, by the way. Um, uh, But it became a whole thing. They fought over it a lot. 
Um, and there's a lot of things in here about Jewish people. Robert Cohn is villainized constantly for being Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, they call him words that I'm not going to repeat. So, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to take over the whole no, thing No, <laughs> there was a note there. Um, Ezra Miller recently made some comments about polyamory that reminded me of the way that Hemingway talks about Robert Cohn's character of, like, being a, a safe person that you can keep around the lady folk. And it's like, eh, eh. There are a lot of references in here to mocking Cohn's masculinity, which is pretty funny when you think about the fact the fact that Jake Barnes is impotent. And that's a big thing through the whole book. There is an entire passage where they're talking about the steers and the bulls and the steers calming down the bulls and that being their whole thing. A steer is a castrated bull. Yes. In case you didn't know, I had to look it up even though I live in, well, I don't live in farm country anymore. I knew because I lived in farm country. So a lot of this is the whole beta male, alpha male argument that ties back into the toxic masculinity party yes there's an entire part where they're talking about them being calmed down and one of the guys looks over at cone and says oh you're comfortable with this because you're definitely a steer or it implies this so that's that's really fun that's like going up to your guy friend and being like you don't have any balls dude that's like going up to your guy friend and saying that he's a beta (laughs) you're a beta man there's nothing wrong with that. Anyway. <laughs> and, you know, we do have to say, this is a product of its time. Um, Which I hate that argument. I, but... I hate that argument, too, because here's the thing with product of its time stuff, and I will say this as a person of color living in America, mm-hmm. product of its time makes it sound like it stopped being. Which it hasn't. Which it hasn't. Um, as we've continued to say over and over again in this podcast, toxic masculinity did not go away. It has not. This level of anti-Semitism did not go away. This misogyny did not go away. So to say, like, it was a different time, kind of, like, waves a wand over it like it stopped existing, and it hasn't. It's still a problem. There's their entire passage in there about the African-American fighter who's in Paris, and... I gotta tell you, if you're listening to the audiobook version of this, it's really uncomfortable if you don't have your headphones in. Yeah, that's not a that's not a play this in your car while you have other people in it. No, that's that's a fast forward here. Mm-hmm. Fast forward here. Um, really uncomfortable. <laughs> yep, in- intensely uncomfortable. So um, I I do. There are instances where I'm okay with the, it was, there were a product of their time arguments. Like, I used it a little bit with Tom Buchanan um, in the last episode where I um, shocked Victoria. Yes. <laughs> Still in shock. But this time, I will not hold that punch. How are you enjoying your absence? It is, it is good, and I feel warm. I also feel warm. <laughs> and I keep looking at you and going, I'm sorry, did I say something wrong? Every- are we Okay. Everything is great. I also did want to bring up the point um, back to Hemingway and Fitzgerald that I continue to have in my mind that um, Hemingway is Draco Malfoy and Fitzgerald is Harry Potter who's just like naturally talented and doing his best and is kind of sweet and then Draco is just malicious and angry but can't stop talking about him. In this instance, would uh, Ginny be like Zelda Fitzgerald but like useless. not ruining his life? I was, like, I was going to say useless. <laughs> I would like to point out that I don't feel that Zelda Fitzgerald ruined his, er, Scott's life. However, Hemingway sure as shit did. Or at least tried to. He, um, he put constantly in, like, everything he wrote. I think Zelda's ruining his life. Zelda's ruining his life. He can't write because of Zelda. And then he'd be like, oh, and also alcohol. That's, that's a big deal, too. So I will, I will request fan art of that, listeners. So yes, we would love fan art. Please, please sort these authors appropriately. I'm gonna go with Hemingway being a Slytherin. Yeah, I think I think he joins us. Yeah. Initially, you know, before diving back into Hemingway, I was like, he's totally a Gryffindor. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, not after you read his letters to Scribners. Shall we get back on the train tracks? Oh, man. I know. (laughs) There's a, a part in this book that I really like where Hemingway very rarely uses extraneous detail. But there's a part where he goes in to pick up tickets, and he mentions that the guy he picks up tickets for the bullfight from is an archivist, and then immediately follows it with the sentence, this has nothing to do with the story. 
So honestly, I feel like I'm just going to use that constantly now in this podcast. Of This has nothing to do with this. This has nothing to do with the story. Yes. So I do have to ask. Listening. Other than the steers and the bull symbol, which mm-hmm. AP students use that. Yes. Um, what are some other symbols that you found or you thought about or... Or is this more like Hemingway just being like, this is the flat out story, just follow what I said? I think it's a little bit of both, because if anything, to me, it's more of I'm interested in the symbols that to him are relevant. Um, The whole bullfighting thing is so interesting. This is such a machismo, uh, erotic dance of hyper masculinity and passion and power and phallic symbolism. So So much how you thrust into awaiting quivering flesh. I'm a fan fiction writer, if you can't tell. (laughs) If you can't tell. Um, That whole metaphor to me really spoke to me because that also does sound like something that a 27-year-old who just finishes college and has too much money from their parents decides to go on a trip to reclaim their manhood. It all just... I will say, I think I liked reading this now as a mm -hmm mm-hmm-year-old because I kind of feel that existential crisis a little bit am i the only one who felt? no and that's the funny thing is like reading these books again you read them in high school and you're very much of the i'm gonna live forever mindset you haven't necessarily and this is different for everybody you haven't necessarily lost the major figures in your life yet and if you have like it's it's awful it is at that point in time you're still young and immortal and fighting your through every little thing so this book kind of bounces off you as, okay, so they were all drunk in Spain and there was bullfights. And they were old. And then you get older and you read it and you go, oh, man, I was in love like that once. Except I didn't stalk somebody. I uh, might have. This is, okay, so Robert Cohn stalking her through Spain is like the most uncomfortable thing. This is, is up there with Gatsby moving to go be with Daisy. Uh, it's one of, it's 100% one of those like fanfic things of like, on paper, this sounds really sweet. And then again, like, in the background, you hear the law, the law and order, dun, dun. like, it's a crime. It is, it is so uncomfortable reading this now because he's going through the streets of Spain trying to find her with her bullfighter friend. Mm-hmm. And he's going to kick the crap out of him when he finds him. And you're just sitting there going, no, dude, just just walk away. She said no. She, she went back to her fiancé. And then she left her fiancé for a bullfighter. You are so far down the line. This is never going to happen for you. You are just being crazy. I feel like you could yell you're just being crazy at 75% of these characters. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And and it doesn't help that, you know, you're pretty much perpetually drunk. We need to talk about alcohol. We do need to talk about alcohol. As we drink more alcohol. As we drink. By the way, absinthe and champagne. I think I've had, like, maybe an inch of this glass. And it is... It is strong stuff, friends. Yeah, only drink absinthe responsibly and with a friend. Yes. Don't drink absinthe alone. Don't have anything to do for the next five hours after you record a podcast while drinking. Nope. Nope, absolutely not. I will, I will, I'm pacing myself because I have places to be and also because I like my liver. Yes, my liver and I are fighting. Fair. We're always fighting. I, I definitely want to, as a cocktail person, as resident cocktail smith. Um, Hemingway's dedication of words to alcohol. Oh, goodness. He describes alcohol as lushly as Anne Rice describes New Orleans. Yes. You know how Anne Rice in one book will go on for like 20 pages about a mural? That's how this man loves his alcohol. And it's not even that he devotes lush descriptions, but frequent, constant. You You perpetually know what they're drinking, and when they're drinking. Um, I like that they talk about food a lot. Yes. That makes me very happy, because I'm a bit of a francophile, like a Calvin Candy. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> That's a Django reference, for those of you just now tuning in. Um, Wait till she tells you her story about hot cake. That's for the um, after show. That's for the after show. <laughs> but I do love the amount of words dedicated to food. And to really the last main character of the novel, which is the lost generation of France and World War II. Which, do you want to talk about the lost generation and oh. World War II and World War One and 
World War One messed War I. a lot of people up. Including Hemingway. Including Hemingway. So Hemingway actually was, I'm gonna join, I'm gonna join, I'm gonna fight. But he joined the Red Cross, which is great. It is. The Red Cross. I apologize if I'm wrong. Let me know. Um, yeah, or, so. or let me know nicely. He ended up getting blown up pretty quickly into his service, where he ended up in the hospital with this uh, nurse that he ends up writing about a fair bit named Agnes. He had a lot of shrapnel in his leg. He was not sure he was going to do well, but he was kind of proud of it. Yes. And this nurse was very kind to him and very nice, and he felt very, very deeply in love with her, or as as much as, as Hemingway tended to fall in love with a woman, to the point where he said that he was, you know, we're going to get married, this is great. And I kind of feel like this nurse just kind of went, okay, honey, okay. Yeah, you, know? you had a lot of painkillers. Yeah, and she she went off and ended up with somebody else. Right. And he didn't really recover from that very well. He ended up marrying Hadley, his first wife, almost mm. immediately after this. And a lot of people feel like he married her on the rebound, which is really unfair to Hadley because she was a great human being. Right. She went without a lot because of Hemingway. She would let her shoes wear completely through so that there was food for him. She And so he could continue to work in cafes and not have to go get a job in France. Right. And I, I definitely want to bring it back to the historical oh, yeah, relevance historical. of World yeah. War One. Um, World War One. Um, that's hard for us to kind of wrap our heads around. Yes. That this is really the invention of modern warfare, mm-hmm. one. And trench then, warfare, Trench especially. warfare, two. And then a, a word that we use flagrantly but was new at the time, cynicism. Mm-hmm. For the first time in the history of mankind, war was not gorgeous. It wasn't a sex metaphor. It wasn't something that you were proud of. It wasn't something that you were happy to do. It was an obligation. It was bloody. And it usually meant death and injury and losing your friends and potentially losing your life. For something that to you seems stupid, mm-hmm. far from home, and miserable. And it was one of the reasons the U.S. waited so long to get involved in World War One, mm-hmm. is we were getting reports of how bad it was. And it was like, all right, well, we really need to go do our world police duty. Yes. And that started the world police yeah. duty for the U.S. Now, the reason most of the people who went to France went to France is because it was cheap. Yes. I mean, in our culture now, we're like, oh, a trip to France, that's a lot of money. But back then, it was cheaper than living in New York. It was cheaper than living in the U.S. It was a, I've got some money in my pocket, I can rent a really cheap apartment, I can go to the cafe every day, I can drink wine and champagne and not feel weird about it. And absinthe. And absinthe. Um, All my friends are here, you know, let's hang out. And you'll see in a lot of Hemingway's works later on too, especially in Movable Feast, he talks about how the rich people came in and ruined it. Which is really interesting because some is he of his, talking about New York? Is this like gentrified New York? <laughs> he's talking. The funny thing is, it's like Gerald and Sarah Murphy were his big like patrons. They helped him a lot. They put up with him showing up their house in the middle of the night to read new passages of his book, and they did this for Fitzgerald and a lot of other people as well. So just realize that the Murphys were pretty cool people. They were saints. Um, they were rich people, but they really loved artists, and they wanted to hang out with them, and they wanted to help them. And even, um, I believe, Gerald was actually a, a modern artist, and he was, like, trying to get tips from the guys of the day. Like, Picasso, show me what to do. Um, but he was really good in his own right. That's my defense of the Murphys. I'm very but, proud um, of you. Everybody was there at the time, and, and that's why you have so much crossover. I mean... Dorothy Parker went over there. Robert eventually went over there. I mean, they didn't stay as long. They ended up in Hollywood and all sorts of other things, which I'm sure we'll talk about at a later time. Oh, we have to. But it was one of those things where, you know, you walked down the street, you saw another American because you could afford to live there. It was cheap and you didn't have to deal with back home. And also the immense disillusionment that Mm -hmm. you had after the war. So when they call it the lost generation, they're not doing that to be ironic. Like, that is not in any way an ironic use of that term. And I apologize. Our neighborhood dogs are serenading us because there is a, uh ambulance going by. The beauty of living in San Antonio, all. Is the dog symphony. I did say the lost generation and the dogs started howling. I think that's pretty magical. The dogs want to be part of the lost generation. They're like, we're going to Paris. <laughs> Woo! This is true. But, um, you definitely 
get that feeling when it comes to using the term lost generation that they don't mean this ironically because I feel like especially those of us now we use a lot of terms um, and we don't think of their weight. I 100% agree with but that. This is this is truly a generation of people that you realize after you have shrapnel in your leg and you have lost friends and loved ones to a war that to you seems stupid and Sisyphean, you cannot go home again. You can't. Yeah, Sisyphean. That's a good one. <laughs> Thank you. And that's especially, you know, this was the first time we had mustard gas. This it is was. the first time we had trench warfare where, you know, you dig a trench, you sit in it, you have to run through the no man's land in between. And you almost always die or end up in barbed wire. And it's one of those things where it's brutal and it's mean and it's awful and it's not what they were used to. No, and it's not romanticized either. I mean, you think of like Guernica and all the other pieces of art that talk about World War One. It isn't phallic symbols stabbing into barbarian, you know, it's blood and chaos and innocence losing their lives. Yeah, that's a lot of words on war. We're definitely the what the folks who felt they lost their innocence the most. Yep. And then to go from that to, oh God, Hitler's coming. And yep. you'll see a lot of people, especially of that generation who had been through World War One going, no, 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 no. We don't want to get involved. We can't get involved. We can't do this again. We're not doing this again. We're not doing this. And like having that full on, and I can say this because I have an anxiety disorder, full on panic attack about it. Right. And also, um, not to bring up the uncomfortable term, but um, also a fair amount of racism and anti-Semitism. Oh, so much. So much. Because they needed someone to blame. So they would blame anyone. Right. Which is horrible. Because, I mean, it's what's happening now, which is really terrifying. It is. Um, the whole, let's blame the Roma, who everybody calls gypsies at the time, which still hurts my soul. Indeed. Um, the yelling at people of color, yelling at people of Jewish descent, yelling at folks who were homosexual. Yep. It blows my dang mind how many people that they came through and were like, well, if we kill them, it's not going to be a problem. And you see a lot of that in the U.S. right now with, oh, we just have to stop these people from coming over the border. People who are coming over the border legally for, you know, seeking asylum. Seeking asylum. It's. Yeah. Here's a fun truth. Americans right now are in some way less opposed to refugees coming in from Syria than we were about Jews coming into America during World War II. There was a lot of no, not in my country. And I think that level of just shock after World War One, I, I think baked into Hemingway and that's where the casual misogyny and the casual racism and the casual anti-Semitism on top of it being a different time. I think a lot of that bakes in a little, which leads us to the happier symbol, which is like Ratatouille, the movie France is its own character. France is absolutely its own character in this book, as is Spain. Spain is like that stoic, beautiful woman who is just there for a really good time. Paris is the lively woman who is like, come back to my bosom when you are done. I love that they're both women to you. I guess it's because I've enjoyed two shows about personified countries. They're both men to me. They're both men to you. Interesting. Yes. Tell me about that. Oh, so uh, one of them is Scandinavia and the World, which is a very, very popular webcomic that envisions a lot of the world. Um, the other is Axis Powers Italia, which is an anime. Um, and in both those instances, they're men. And if you haven't picked up, she is like the queen, or sorry, your preferred pronoun, the absolute ruler. Thank you. Uh, I accept king, queen, prince. I just won't accept princess. Okay. Awesome. I've, I'm a huge otaku, I apologize. But literature is my first and most important love. Yes. And how could it not be? Okay, but I guess we're, we're those people from school, too. We are 100% those people from school that act. I was watching a Try Guys video or some kind of video on the internet. I don't mean to fallaciously drop the Try Guys. That said, teachers, no one reads the book that you assigned in school. And I was aghast. I was horrified too. And I've talked to this about this with my husband where he's like, oh, I didn't read anything they you know, told us we needed to read. So I asked him, I'm like, have you read any Tennessee Williams? Have you read any of this? And he's like, uh what he went to school in savannah like i'm sitting there going 
you have all these southern writers. They had to have forced all this five upon of them. you. <laughs> all five southern writers. <laughs> so I'm like, what, what did you have to read? I didn't read anything. What? Meanwhile, Amanda and I are sitting here going, no, we read everything and then some. Yes. And then we're like, okay, I need every history book you can give me. You know what? Scratch that. It was not the Try Guys. It was John Oliver. It was last week tonight. <sighs> so John Oliver, I did read what my English teacher um, told me to read. I just didn't like it most of the time. That's why I have a podcast now. <laughs> See, I have a podcast because I have daddy issues. Same. Cheers. Anyway. Um... Let's talk about misogyny with Hemingway's use of the word bitch. Oh, Lord. So something, a fun side fact, because everything I give you is fun side facts. At one point in time, when Hemingway had left his first two wives for Martha Horn, they were in a hotel covering this war in separate hotel rooms. He came and locked her door because he told her he didn't want her to get a reputation for being a whore de comp, which she was there to cover the war. She was a fellow journalist. What the hell? This part of this is Hemingway. This is this is just who he is, and that's frustrating to deal with. Because especially, and I'm skipping a little bit ahead in history, spoiler alert if you don't know his history, when he dies via himself, suicide. Shotgun ketchup. Yeah. Um we sort of like Gadsby made him into a saint. Mm-hmm. He became, again, like, the male Sylvia Plath. But that meant that we had to put all of his bad things to bed because you can't be mean to dead people. Which Especially, we're seeing you know, a lot of changes on now. Yes. Uh, for, for better or worse, because I do think that there's an inverse of that. I think you can't ignore the good that these people have done when mm-hmm. they've done good. I'm not going to ascribe good to people who don't deserve it. Right. But it is frustrating that we had to sort of reconcile... 50 years of garbage just i was like oh well no grandpa didn't do anything wrong what's really interesting too is at this point in time with hemingway um he had not made very many friends a lot of his final interviews and a lot of interviews as he progressed in his career after you know his peace prize and stuff like that or nobel prize for literature pardon the, the I was gonna say, issue there hemingway winning a peace prize that, i can't imagine that at this point in time, he had had two plane crashes, one of which may have caused some issues. Um, but he was not a very nice man. He was interviewed by one writer, and he was pissed because she ended up writing an article about the fact that he had just continued to drink champagne their entire interview. Same. And Yeah, well, right now. Um, <laughs> and just went on and on and on about, you know, he's not a very nice guy to me. Um, he would pull the very man's man card and then in the same breath be like, but you really need to do this, this, and this. And just was not a great human being towards the end. He was on, I believe his fourth wife, I believe it was Mary. And that was when he committed suicide. And it's, she ended up being the one who had to clean up the mess. And to some extent is the one who formed the book, A Movable Feast. Because she took a lot of things out where he was praising his first wife, Hadley, and saying, you know, she's a long-suffering martyr and things like that. Yeah, you, you do get a bit of this, um, you get an issue of who was the real Ernest Hemingway a little bit, um, especially since he died. So I don't want to say suddenly. I feel like, I feel like we understand how he got to where he did. The most uncomfortable thing, if you go to the Hemingway house in Key West, there is a portrait they have in one room. It's a a picture that somebody had taken of him with a shotgun he used to kill himself over his shoulder. And it was taken, I believe, like three weeks before he actually killed himself. John C. Calhoun. John C. Calhoun? I watch Crash Course a lot, and Mm -hmm. in lieu of swearing, John Green would say an uncomfortable political figure. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So John C. Calhoun was the Supreme Court uh, attorney who who basically caused the whole Dred Scott thing. John C. Calhoun it is, then. (laughs) Sorry, I'm a huge nerd. No, it's good. It makes me happy. I learned many things working with you. Um, As you can probably tell, Hemingway did not care for his mother. At all. I don't think, okay, this might be the absence talking. I don't think Hemingway cared for women. I think Hemingway cared for a certain idea of women. I think he cared for statues. 
And that's a lot of what Hadley kind of was to him. Yeah. She was this long-suffering, sweet figure who just kind of rolled with the punches until he put her over for Pauline Pfeiffer. Because look at how he vilifies uh, Lady Brett Ashley, to bring this back to the book, that he vilifies a woman with agency. Absolutely. In many of the ways that I think Fitzgerald vilifies a woman with agency. Mm-hmm. God bless toxic masculinity, and by God bless, I mean goddamn. So something interesting, too, and I'm full of useless facts, as you might have noticed. Amanda is constantly trying to pull us back towards the plot of the book, and so I apologize because she's she's doing her job. I make I zero not. apologies for it. <laughs> um, something really interesting about this book is Duff Twyden, um, the inspiration for Brett Ashley, her in-laws were so offended by this book and by the portrayal of her that they tried to buy the printing plate so that no more copies of this book could make it out into the world. And I personally feel that that is a level of petty that I aspire to be. That is a level of petty that I aspire to be. Like that dog who found his his owners just to bite them. Or like a Poe's editor cutting the back of his chair so he couldn't get comfortable in it. (sighs) That's fantastic. I got to take that picture when I went to the Poe Museum in uh, Richmond, Virginia. Shout out to the Poe Museum in Richmond, Virginia. Absolutely. I was so jealous. So she's sending me pictures and I'm like, hmm. Yeah, apparently uh, one of Poe's editors at a Southern Literacy cut the backs of one of his chairs so he couldn't get too comfortable. And I mean, I kind of feel like that's what our bosses do now. Oh, 100%. Completely. That is a short chair. That is a very short chair. Don't get comfortable. What's next? So much. Um, Okay. So we were trying to keep this under an hour, and obviously we're at 41 minutes. Um. As we talked about a little bit before, Hemingway had a super short fuse when it came to writing, when it came to pretty much everything. And God bless Max Perkins, who literally was the guy who would sit you down and be like, it's okay, you're doing fine. This is the start of those literary agents and, and you know, Hollywood agents that are like, you're a great kid, you're golden, we need to change this. Perkins did this with Fitzgerald. He did this with basically all the writers he worked with was, you're great. You're a star. You're fantastic. Maybe if we change this one word. You're beautiful. You're gorgeous. You look like Linda Evangelista. You're a model. (laughs) (laughs) Drag Race and Ernest Hemingway in the same podcast. Yahtzee. (laughs) John Z. Calhoun. (laughs) Um, If you ever get a chance, um, I was very lucky. I got to go on my honeymoon to Key West, mm-hmm. and there is the Hemingway House, which is cash only. So just if before you get off the ship or, you know, leave your hotel room, go get cash, because otherwise it's going to hurt. Um, I feel like that's very Hemingway. Like, how do I make this as uncomfortable for tourists as I can? And I got to say, <laughs> the the tour guides there are amazing. First of all, the cats are trained. There are about 40 polydactyl cats there. Because Hemingway had a polydactyl cat that he got in Paris. And then they just kind of kept letting their cats breed. Now, there are some normal cats that don't have six toes. Um, and we love them and less. And we love them well, a little less. <laughs> but if you go to his house, there's actually a giant like a giant cat house model of the Hemingway house that all of the cats kind of live in. And there's even a urinal that's become a cat fountain that was from the original Sloppy Joe's bar that Hemingway used to go to all the time. One night they were losing their lease or something like that and they needed to move to a different location. So Hemingway was helping them carry chairs and bar stools and other little things for the counters and glasses. And he found the urinal and he's like, I am taking this. So he carried it the several blocks to his house and it got turned into a cat fountain. And when you're there, it just looks like this really pretty kind of like a little art decorative piece. piece, and you're like, oh, that's really cool. And then you go through with the tour guides, they're like, so that's a urinal. Can I just say, I can't imagine having Ernest Hemingway as a neighbor. I can't either, because he used to have a giant fighting ring in his backyard. And then when he went on vacation, Pauline Pfeiffer was super pissed off at him because he was being a dick. So she dug it up and put a pool in there that probably to our standards today, cost about $10 million oh, Jesus. because they had to dig down into the, the earth there, which is, um, I want to say it's like shell or lime scale or something yeah, it's to, make this, to make this pool. And he was so mad that when he came back, he said, 
you have caused me to spend my last red cent through it. And in the ground, there's actually a penny that they have put a, like, glass thing over. Oh, my God. So you can see the penny. And the tour guides, that's, like, their favorite thing to point out. Okay, Hemingway might be the pettiest person on earth, thus confirming that he is Draco Malfoy, and thus confirming that I am the Hemingway to your Fitzgerald. Okay. We, we, were, we were talking about this the other day, um, about who would be Hemingway and who would be Fitzgerald, and I realized that, yes, I probably would have been Fitzgerald. Hi, I get to yell at you now, I'm kidding. <laughs> I would be the one sending myself postcards at the Garden oh, of no! Allah, going, I'm lonely, but it's okay, because I'm going to visit soon, it's fine. And- my thought process is, if I can scream louder, you can't see how small and sad I am. <laughs> this is so sad. No, it's not. We have absinthe in a cup. There is no sadness here. <laughs> Only alcohol-induced warmth. <laughs> Which, right now in Texas, it's very cold where we are, but well, it might actually be warm out today. It's, I don't it's know. It's pretty warm out. I haven't left um, the house there today. There is one symbol that I think that we forgot to talk about. Hmm. Impotent. Oh, yeah. Uh, gentlemen, gird your loins. Gird your loins, especially from Shrapnel in World War One. Right. Um, I think that we have to talk about that as a symbol in hyper-masculinity, because as much as toxic masculinity is a factor, hyper-masculinity is also a factor. Absolutely. Not just for the characters in The Sun Also Rises, but also for Hemingway himself. Oh, yeah. Um, one of the most iconic Im- images of Hemingway is always, um, with, like, 15 guns, like, a pile of dead animals, and, like, a, a flank of women. Let me walk away from this plane crash with nary a scratch. Right, like, honestly, he reminds me a bit of, like, Rambo. Exactly. <laughs> was he the literary Stallone? I really think he was. Or almost like a Burt Reynolds. Just, like, this hyper-masculine sex god of, like, there are guns everywhere, just a pile of dead animals. I just had this image of Hemingway and, like, the sweater on Pilar going, Adrian! Yeah, and now I can't get it out of my head. Literally. It's fabulous. I think it's so interesting to choose to make Hemingway's analog in this book impotent. Um, Though though Jake Barnes finds many other penises, uh, the pen, uh, alcohol, uh, charm, wit, What's interesting about that, too, is Jake Barnes, they mention it, he mentions it a couple times, but then goes on and is just, like you were saying, hyper-masculine. Yes. He elevates himself to a point where, you know, he's holding his own. It's like, whatever, what dick, doesn't matter, I'm still more of a man than you are. Yes, and as if, like, that would be the worst defect that someone could have. Right. Like that, oh, goodness, crawl into your own grave. Shame. Shame. We need a bell now. No, we don't. <laughs> we, we've had absinthe and champagne. We do not need a bell. Um, taxidermy, I think we also need to mention. Okay, so obviously this is a part that I missed my first go-round with this book, but there is an amazing part where Jake Barnes and some of the guys are drunk off their asses, walking through the city, talking about taxidermy dogs and how great of a gift they would be. And I agree with this Okay. as we sit in the podcast studio. Surrounded by taxidermy. I have to admit, I love small animal taxidermy, and this is probably a dangerous thing to put out into the world. I did it for a while. I remember going to Hobby Lobby, which I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I go to Michael's now. Um, There was a stack of these little, like, doll toy things that I was buying. And the lady goes, oh, that's so cute. What are you going to use them for? And I said, um, small animal taxidermy. And she called the girl behind her to come back up to the counter. And my mom is behind me. And I'm just like, oh, God. For an introvert, that is a special life. But I kind of feel like I asked for it. You did. You did. Um, Also, see our photos from the Austin Oddities Expo where I have a nervous breakdown over taxidermy ducklings. Oh, they were so small and so cute. But I have a note about taxidermy because, uh, fun fact, my day job is working in the funeral industry. Which is awesome, and I'm constantly jealous of. This is true. Taxidermy as a symbol to me is very, very interesting, because it is freezing in time a moment of dominance. It is making a still life out of something that was not still. And it is one of the most hyper-masculine things that you can do. What do you do if your dick doesn't work? You surround yourself 
with the shows of your manhood and your dominance, which is dead animals that you have conquered either by simply outliving them or by murdering them yourself. I did not even think about that. I was just very excited that there was a stuffed dog in this book. That's why I'm here. I See, I saved you once again. I saved you with the color yellow in The Great Gatsby. I'm just Gatsby. saying, AP students, I know we swear. I know we drink. I know we're probably not classy. But we're trying to save you some work here on your papers. Right. Like, taxidermy is a big, it's a big deal. And then considering how much of a hunter Hemingway was. Yep. Hemingway had, like, a reverse Noah's Ark <coughs> situation. <laughs> Where instead of, like, two by two alive, it was just, how many animals can I shoot? Two by two on the wall. That was literally Hemingway. His house is really cool, though, guys. Like, you really should go. Just, especially just to go to the bookstore. Because the bookstore is literally, like, every Hemingway book, every Hemingway biography. Um, and they put little stickers on them that say, Hemingway House, Key West. And they have cat bowls that are blue and white and adorable. And if you get one, you can feel like your cats are bougie forever. It's on my list, but I have a haunted doll to visit there first. Oh, I want to see Robert the Doll so bad. Yes. Yes. Uh, when, when we sell out fully, we'll go on a trip. Called, like, tour stop number one, Key West. Yes, 100%. 100%. I'm trying to think if there are any other symbols that I think matter a lot. I mean, there's probably a bunch. And I know that somebody in the background right now is screaming something into the ether. Absolutely. Going, How did you miss this? It was so important. Trust me, we're like that too. Yeah, and in hindsight, we have about 30 minutes where it's like, how did we not mention this? Oh, and we want to talk about how France is beautiful and lovely and French people are lovely, but Spaniards are terrible. What? I've never been to either place. In Hemingway's descriptions. Oh, in Hemingway's descriptions. I'm like, not actual countries. They're both lovely. Please don't. I was like, excuse me. Please. What? Please. I need my passport. No, in Hemingway's descriptions. Well, I thought it was really interesting, too, is that whole part where Hemingway is talking about the financial yes. aspect of eating in different countries. Yes. About how you go to Spain and you get just this gigantic meal. And it's just course after course after course. And even if you say you don't want the meat course, they bring you a different meats instead. True. And then in France, how you can get away with making the waiter like you just by tipping him well. And then he that's a good transaction because you can continue to come to this restaurant and get the level of service that you expect as long as you make sure that you're tipping them. But you don't have to tip the guy that you're never going to see again. This is, yes. It honestly sounds like how I navigate the local Olive Garden. But not the Texas Roadhouse. You can't go to Texas Roadhouse, though. My family continued to take me despite my chagrin and my food allergy. Yeah, I don't take us to places that have feet up. I have an allergy. I have a doctor's note. But um, no, I think again that feeds into the whole. It really just feels like stream of consciousness. This is Hemingway writing exactly what he feels. Um, fact check me on this. Did Ulysses come out before or after? Ooh, James Joyce. I honestly don't know. I can be that teabag and look it up. Because I, I feel like this might be one of the better examples of a stream of consciousness novel. Because it really doesn't feel like these are characters. It just feels like Hemingway writing a fan fiction about high school. It it really was. I mean, it's <laughs> the more you, you get into it and the more you read the actual story, there's an incredible book called Everyone Behaves Badly. It's Leslie M.M. M. Bloom. You need to read this book. It We'll go into all the details of this is what actually happened. This is what Hemingway wrote that happened. Um, but it's very much his fan fiction of his own life. So, Ulysses the novel da, 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 published its entirety on February 2nd, 1922. So, before. Before, okay. Hemingway, you poser. Let me actually see if I'm wrong. No, hopefully not. Well, I've had absence, so... We have had absence. She's had more than me. Yes, I watched you for 1926, so yes, after. Okay, well, I'll say it. I think that this is the more palatable stream of consciousness novel because I hate Ulysses. Oh my gosh. Also, if you ever want to watch Hemingway be a massive dick, read his letters about Faulkner. Yes. He's bad. He, he is, is very bad. Especially because Faulkner was a janitor. Can I just... Can we just end on the fact, or, like, wind down towards the fact that Hemingway was not a nice person. He was not. And 
I, I definitely, I want to touch back on his death again, because... That his kids and grandkids are. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. No, it's fine. I mean, it's not fine. Absent. <laughs> I... I think Hemingway is part of the reason we have the tortured artist movie. Absolutely. I think he's part of the reason why we have this idea that a good writer should be medicated, shouldn't take care of themselves, and that should follow its logical conclusion, which oftentimes is death via your own hand. And that's frustrating as someone who's struggled with the demons of mental illness and has used everything but doctor's notes to cope with mental illness, like champagne and absinthe and uh, smutty fanfiction. It's frustrating to go through a person like Hemingway, because I feel like he's one of those authors that is important to people, but then we lose sight of him because of how he died. I feel like Anthony Bourdain will have a similar effect. Which is really sad, because Bourdain did so much. He did. And it's kind of class, too. There's another podcast out there called No Man's Land. Mm -hmm. They're really good, guys. They cover Sylvia Plath's death, and, well, barely. They cover Sylvia Plath's life. Which is there's more important. There's a brief mention of her death. Because it's so important to realize that there's a person behind the woman. There's a yes. person behind the person who pulled the shotgun or put their head in the oven. Like, right. it is so much more than a ten-minute period of their lives that ended it. Absolutely. And, and I don't mean to say this with any amount of insensitivity, because, again, these are all demons that I think we've both dealt with a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just frustrating that I think we focus so much on death, but in none of the ways that are beneficial to the conversation. Right. Like, what led up to it? I think we romanticize death. Much as we romanticize Sylvia Plath's death. Um, and that's, as a literary scholar, is frustrating to deal with. And if you ever do have to write a paper that really discusses authorial intent, you have to mention how he died. You have no choice. But I would challenge you to do so with more tact. This is not an episode of TMZ. You don't need to sensationalize it. There was a man who lived a full life up until that point and should have lived a fuller life for more years to come. And I, like Sylvia Plath, lament that we did not get another great Hemingway novel because of it. And to some extent, you'll see this with Fitzgerald as well. Um, Fitzgerald didn't commit suicide. Though there is conjecture. Yeah, there is conjecture. He he had a very serious alcohol problem. So it's not something that we'd like gloss over and just be like, oh, we're having these cocktails. Funny. Um, he he hurt himself. He hurt himself badly for years and felt that he could only write with the influence of alcohol. He mm-hmm. had a doctor convinced that it was an upper for him. Um. Yeah, here's the issue though. It there is most medical, you know, professionals as well. I really do believe that it can lead to heart disease and it can lead to heart attacks. Um, and he died of a massive heart attack, massive car, um, cardiac episode, and very young, very young for his um, his skill set. He was still working on the last tycoon, which Hemingway flat out said would never have been published otherwise. He said it was something that he thought Scott would work on for the next thousand years. But it's it's just one of those things we, you know, we're having a laugh, we're having a cocktail and that kind of stuff. We do really want you to remember that there is a person behind this book. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, it's always difficult to deal with that, especially, and I think whenever we do inevitably cover Sylvia Plath, mm-hmm. I think we'll have an even more apologetic tone when it comes to it, because... At least with Hemingway, he was a jerk, and it's easy to say that he was a jerk. Um, I think the further we go down this road with more writers that were um, definitely more victims of their existence and their times, it's going to get harder and harder to reconcile those demons. Ooh, when we get to Virginia Woolf. Ooh! Now, were there any other key points that you wanted to bring up or make sure that we cover? I think we've covered nearly all of it. Um, your high points are going to be uh, toxic masculinity is there always. France is its own character. Really, Spain is also, Spain its, own is character. also its own character. 
steers versus bull mentality. Women are great as long as they don't have agency. Like going through, I'm like, what else do you want to include in your papers, kids? Well, let me give you some resources. Yes. Um, as you can probably tell from our social media, I read a lot more than I probably have time for, but here we go. Um, I've already mentioned Everyone Behaves Badly by Leslie M. M. Bloom. Great book. Hemingway versus Fitzgerald. Scott Donaldson. Just finished that. It is phenomenal. It I'm gives so glad you liked it. So good. Amanda gave it to me for my birthday. Um, there is literally sections that are a breakdown of Fitzgerald's uh, alcoholism, Hemingway's alcoholism, and just kind of comparing their lives going through. Um, a movable feast, Hemingway himself. Um, keep in mind that a lot of this is his standard, let me write myself to look like the best person ever. Uh, the Sun Also Rises. If you haven't read it, read it. This podcast may make it make more sense. It might make it make less sense. I don't know. Sure, I would love to know anyone else's interpretations of it, because we definitely have a very specific lens mm-hmm. that I think we view literature through. Absolutely. And we, we do want your opinions. I mean, obviously be respectful, but... Um, there is an awesome book if you're looking for cocktail recipes called To Have and Have Another, A Hemingway Cocktail Companion by Philip Green. It has not only the cocktail recipes, but the history behind it, and it breaks it down going through. Like, I had no idea that he used to write in New Orleans sometimes. He used to go there for vacation. Oh. There's actually, um, I'm going to butcher the name. It's like Hotel Montalion or whatever. Their top floor is actually, like, their penthouse is like the Hemingway Suite. There's a book called Hemingway in Love by A.E. Hotchner. If you want to be depressed and find out about how much he really loved Hadley and how much he regretted leaving her, great book. Um, Hemingway's Women, which is Bernice Kurt, is really good. Paris Without End by Giola DiLiberto. And then there's one whole book about Hemingway and his interest in um, Russia and the whole aspect of communism, which is a very big hot button right now, called Writer, Sailor, Soldier, Spy by Nicholas Reynolds. That sounds like fun. It is a really good book. So, as always, we would love to hear from you. We have unfortunately required reading at gmail.com. We have um, required for at Twitter. I may be horribly wrong on that. I really need to write this down every time. You're doing great. I believe in you. Awesome. Um, And then we always have our Instagram, and we have a Facebook group as well. The Facebook group is unfortunately required reading. If you just look for us, you will be able to find us. Um, we're not trying to make that difficult. And then our Instagram is unfortunately required. And the great thing about that is too, you can see what books we're working on next. You can see some of our um, source material. And what did we end up deciding we were going to do for the next book? I think we're, are we doing Tennessee Williams? Yeah, let's do it. We're doing The Glass Menagerie. So go ahead, start getting your dose of crazy Southern women, especially overbearing Southern mothers. Eponymous overbearing southern mothers yes and if you will also be providing you with some really good tennessee williams facts as well absolutely thank you for listening to us ramble we love you well listening to me ramble amanda's on point (laughs) i do what i can thank you as always for joining us i'd like to also thank absinthe and uh issues from my childhood cheers